Hey there, my name's Craig and welcome to episode 40 of the Bass Lessons Melbourne Player Profile Podcast. Um, just before we get started, I just want to say thank you to the sponsors of this show. We have um, F-Bass, who have been making handcrafting uh, guitars and basses for 40 years and offer vintage-inspired designs as well as their own contemporary fretted and fretless designs. And also bass face strings. Um, David Gilea, uh, over here in Australia, is importing Ken Smith strings, and um, I, I love them. So if you're looking for strings or basses, uh, I recommend you go and check out those guys. Okay, today's guest is um, is pretty special. It's Reggie Hamilton. Um, and even if you might not know who Reggie Hamilton is, I'm pretty sure you've heard him play because he's been on almost everything. Uh, he played bass for Aretha Franklin, Whitney Houston, Mariah Carey, Boys to Men, Ricky Martin, Christina Aguilera. Um, I mean, the list goes on. Quincy Jones. He's also played in a whole bunch of film scores. Um, uh, he, uh, interestingly, he played bass for Stanley Clark because <laughs> Stanley Clark does a lot of film scoring um, and, and called Reggie in to play bass. So, I mean, that's a, that's a seal of approval if ever there was one, if Stanley Clark calls you to play bass. So it was really great to, to sit down with Reggie and talk about what it's like to be in that world, um, how he got to be where he is, uh, and also what's in store um, for his future. Um, so, as always, guys, uh, I really appreciate you listening. Uh, if you do like the show, then please leave a little review on iTunes or, or even share it on your social media. That would help just get the word out. Um, all these uh, podcast interviews are also available on the Bass Lessons Melbourne YouTube channel. If you haven't checked that out, just do a quick search in YouTube for Bass Lessons Melbourne um, and they should pop up. So um, they're all available on there. And the music you can hear playing in the background is my band Pickpocket. And if you want to check out some more of that, you can go to pickpocketfunk.com. So, without further ado, here we have episode 42, Reggie Hamilton. Riding, John the Revelator, tell me who's that right hand, John 
the river Lee to tell me who's that right in John the river Lee to wrote the book of the silver sea Who's that right in John the river Lee to well who's Hey guys, how's everybody doing? Um, Craig here from Bass Lessons Melbourne and today for the player profile video interview I'm joined by Mr. Reggie Hamilton. How are you man? Good man, how are you? Mm, well thanks. Um, really appreciate you taking the time out to my sit down with me. Um, so you're in Australia with, uh, with Chris Boaty. I am. Yeah, I'm, how's uh, that been going? It's been great, I mean I've been doing the gig about six weeks. Okay. And um, Great people. Chris is great, loves tone. Mm. really focused on that which is cool because I'm all about that yeah you know uh, I think we're doing five cities here and then we're in Auckland and afterwards we're in Hong Kong for a couple of nights okay. you know, so it's kind of a whirlwind nice yeah yeah I, and how did that gig kind of come about it came up about 15 years ago um, <laughs> I was playing with Billy Childs and Bobby Columbi had approached me about doing it and uh, I could just never make it for some reason. We, our, our schedules were just never in sync, and so sure. it happened that um, November there was a, a tribute to Tony Bennett. He was winning the Gershwin Prize, and Chris was on the gig, and um, they asked me if I could do it, and it just turns out I could. So cool, it was great. Yeah, and so what's the kind of um, preparation? For, for a gig like this? Like, are you guys rehearsing for a couple of weeks before you come out? Or no rehearsal like, at all. Here's the music and we'll see you on stage kind of thing? Pretty, it's pretty much that. Right. Pretty much that. Yeah. yeah. And then sound check, you just kind of you, yeah. run stuff. You run it, sound check, and you know, you sort of feel your way through. Wow. Everybody has their own <coughs> way of doing it. You know, I, I was able to take a look at uh, Taylor Ixey's charts, the piano, piano player was on the gig. He's on the gig sometimes, brilliant pianist. Sure. And uh, I was able to get a reference from that because the music is constantly evolving. Yeah. Yeah. So what? So maybe the recording you had is different from how it's being played now. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So it's qu quite improvised. It's a, there's a good bit of improvisation mm. on the gig. You know, there's some set devices that happen, but uh, it's just a lot of listening. Just That's keep cool. your ears open. Yeah. Um, and so you're saying Chris is quite into tone. Yeah. How does that affect? To your approach to this to this gig of you? Well, it's more what I'm about. Yeah. I, Have I, you had to change anything up or approach things differently? Um, <coughs> Feel-wise, I approach things a little bit differently. You know, maybe playing a little bit more on top or something like that. Okay. Because the instruments can be slow to speak. You know, it's great drummer, God rest his soul, Jimmy Paxson, who really walked Jimmy Paxson Sr. His son, Jimmy Paxson Jr., is great, and Charlie. Both of his sons are brilliant. Uh, Jimmy Sr., when I was a kid, I think I was 19 when I was playing with him, uh, he sort of really was the, probably my greatest teacher for big band, you know, just, and he just said a, a few simple things about how the instrument's slow to speak and where to sort of put it. And um, it opened up my mind to about how to approach different things. Because you're playing, you said you're playing mainly upright for this one. This gig is about 70% upright, yeah. Okay, yeah, so. Yeah. Maybe maybe more, maybe 80%. Right. Yeah. And so, the, yeah, that's, the, you know, especially on the upright, there's that little fraction before the note enters the room. Absolutely. And I'm playing on rental basses all the time. 
Sure. Sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's you know a challenge. Right. Let's put it that way. So you so you won't have played the bass for tonight until you get to soundcheck. Until I get to soundcheck. Wow. Yeah. You just gotta deal with it. Just gotta deal with it. I I brought my own <clears throat> bow, so for the rest of these, so I don't have to deal with a rental bow. So sure. that'll be comfortable. But um, bows for me match the instruments too. So and this bow doesn't always match each instrument. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But, um, it's still good. Great bow by Carbo. Electric? Are you you got your own electric or? I have my own electric. I brought a the signature model that I use most of the time, the the candy apple red one, right, the rosewood sure. fingerboard. And that's straight five string jazz, or is that PJ? That's the five string PJ. Five string PJ. Yeah. Yeah. It's five string PJ, and I'm playing it passive. Right. I'm not okay. playing it active, and the amps are usually rentals, but when I can get it, I use a super basement. Because it just sounds so good. Cool. It's just a great amp. Um, and do you have the the ready? I don't have the ready with me because it's it's too much to bring. Yeah. It's too it's it's impossible to bring. Otherwise, I would. Yeah, sure. I um. Is that would you say that's a back home? Is that a pretty big part of your live? That's integral. Setup. Yeah. Part of my live and studio setup. Yeah. You know, um, many cases I'll have two: one for clean sound and one for dirty sound. You mean in terms of effects, or they're just written yes. differently? So, okay. in terms of effects, you know, um, they're usually both set at ten o'clock because it just seems to work best with my bass going to uh, whatever mic pre's mm -hmm. that they're using. Yeah, you know, most guys are. If a guy doesn't know anything, he'll think it's a mic pre and try to run it by itself. I'm like, no, no. it's just a DI. <laughs> it's not just a DI, but sure. it's a DI. Yeah, I mean. It's my favorite. Yeah, maybe talk a little bit about your involvement with that because you're kind of, I don't know, fairly connected with that. You know, you're oh, Peter Montesi. Uh, yeah. yeah, he's he's family to me. He's he's brilliant. The company's great. I, I use all of their products. I have a, for the for the studio setup when I come self-contained and I just have to go to the just have to go right into Pro Tools or right into a two inch. Um, Carl Johnson made a Ventura for me. So I have an old one that's all point to point. And then f with Peter, I've got the 503 with um, the P1 mic pre, then a BAC compressor, then the EMPQ, which is like a tiny little Poltec. Okay. And so that's, I'll run, uh, and Dave, uh, Dave Perlman mic will go through the Ventura, and then uh, my Either it'll be a Fishman, a Full Circle, or the David Gage, the Wood Realist, will go through the P1. And then just kind of light touches on the EQ and yeah. the compression kind of thing. Yeah. Just barely. Yeah, nice. And for the electric bass, it's always the ready to uh, a Pacifica. And um, BAC, but I, I have to admit, I still love, I work at a Tony Shepard studio a lot, so I use the Tube Tech the C1 because it's just. Sounds great. You spent a, a lot of time in the in the studio, I'm guessing. Over I did. The years. I did over the years. <coughs> uh, Stanley Clark was a huge influence in, in tone. He taught me a lot in the studio. He used to use like these Jensen preamps that he had. Yeah. Would be um, would be a Demeter, the, the old Demeter DIs. I just got one of those with the Jensen output transformer. Yeah, they're they're fantastic. So that into kind of like a 1073 mic breeze, yeah. kind of my chain. So similar to the ready into the into the EQ kind of thing. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty it's pretty close. It's it's good. 
And then uh, we would use an Innovonics compressor, which if you can find them, they're great. Nice. It's a little odd <laughs> little box, beige faceplate, and just smoke, cream faceplate, just smoking. Yeah. I did a lot of movies with Stanley using that. Yeah. So Stanley's kind of producing and he would hire you oh, yeah. for, the, for the date? Yeah. I did a... This was way back in the day, so it was like Passenger 57. Oh, yeah? I played on a lot of that, or uh, What's Love Got to Do With It movie. Uh, just a bunch of different stuff with him over the years. Because you know. you'd, you'd think if you see Stanley Clark, you know, music by Stanley Clark, you just assume that he would be playing on it. Well, he, he would, I mean, but sometimes he was so busy composing. Uh, Steubenhaus had played bass on some of the stuff. I had played bass on some of the stuff. Uh, maybe Armand Sabaleko oh, played yeah. on some of it, too. Yeah. Mm. And so what was your what was your kind of path to being to being one of those se session guys? Lots of mistakes, <laughs> lots of practicing, uh, meeting people, being open. I, I guess what where I differ from most of the guys is that I, I not most of the guys that I my contemporaries, but most of the people that are trying to get into the business, they tend to be really closed minded about it. Well, I only play this style or I only play that style. Mm can't do that and you have to be accepting of it I mean I I like speed metal as much as I like a polka you know what I mean it's like I don't, I don't have a problem listening to different stuff because it's music you know in the western world it's as Stravinsky would say you have 12 notes and varying varying rhythms which offers a world of possibilities sure and you know there's good mu there's good and bad music in every genre there's good and bad songs yeah, yeah. in every genre of music for sure yeah. you know and uh, I think that's that's the only thing that I would tell to to young people now. Yeah, you know, I I remember doing a was doing this gig and and this happened to me twice. Two guys, man, I want to sub for you. I want to, you know, and I'm open to it, man. If I if I've got work and I can't make it, yeah. I'll call different guys because yeah. it was done for me. Jimmy Haslip and Abe Laborio used to recommend me. They didn't know me, huh. you know, and that was like '87, '88. They didn't know me from Adam. You know, and so, well, this guy walked up. He says, man, I want to be your sub. You know, I want to do the gigs you can't make. I was like, oh, okay, cool. It's like, so you play a lot of upright? He's like, no, I asked him if you played with the bow. He said, no. I said, you play upright at all? He said, no. I said, you play bebop? I said, no. I said, you rock? He said, no. I said, no pick? I said, nope. <laughs> I said, um, any pop music stuff? Fretless? He said, nope. I said, so what do you want to do? He's like, oh man, I want to do your R&B stuff. I was like, I'm not doing that stuff now. <laughs> and it's happened to me twice. Two different guys have done that. I'm like, That's strange. And I asked him, I was like, do you read at all? He's like, no. Like, oh, oh, okay. okay. Yeah. I'll call you once every five years. <laughs> yeah, if, if, that, if it should happen, you know. But there's so many other guys I could call that mm. reliable because lots of times you just don't know what's going to happen on a gig. One doesn't know. It's like you could come there expecting to do one thing and then suddenly it's like completely different. Sure. If you're unprepared then... Yeah. And has that happened? Being kind of caught out or you've always um, been, you always put it in the homework? Well, there was one time I had Kenny Wilde called me to do a session, called me to cover for him, asked me if I could cover for him on a date and he said, uh, and um, there's a service that calls to tell you when it is. And so no one told me what the date was. So I sent all this electric gear. You know, there's my rack, I had a bunch of bases. And I walk in and um, I see this composer that's passed on. He said, no, man, this is for Animaniacs. Well. 
<laughs> you know, so it's all. So I had to have my up my upright sent in, and so it's a completely different gig. Totally, like a lot of reading. I remember being on an Elfman session though once, and I was so nervous that the guy would the um, the conductor would say we're starting on bar two, and I screwed it up like four times because I was so freaked out. Yeah, you know. Well, it's great that you were maybe in the industry at a point where there was enough work that you kind of that was you could kind of get by that and there were dates coming up it wasn't yeah well you know I mean you can get by you you can get pushed back on the list it's like I don't want to call that guy again he, yeah. you know. so you try not to make too many mistakes for sure yeah. and so were you, were you working in New York as well before early or no I was in New York I was a kid and I was just doing club gigs you yeah. know playing bars and stuff like that you know I was a 12, 13, 14 years old so the ABC really didn't think that too much <laughs> but as long as you don't go to the bar and sit and have a drink you're cool yeah right uh, my mom had hooked me, hooked me and our band up with some gigs and then we started to get our own gigs and That's stuff awesome. like that then as I got older I just started working a lot yeah you know? and then I moved to Atlantic City like 15 I thought it was the worst thing in the world but it turned out to be the best thing for me probably kept me from like killing myself or you know how so you know, you, you kid in New York, you know, there's drugs, there's booze, there's sure. chicks. Yeah. There's drugs, there's booze, chicks, drugs, booze, chicks, <laughs> drugs, booze, chicks. Music. <laughs> and, and some music, too, yeah. <clears throat> some music happens, too. And so Atlantic City was a little quieter, a little bit more grounding. A little cleaner. And I had an awesome band director, this guy named Joe Brown, who, who's still around. And, uh, so was that kind of cabaret stuff, or, or like, what was with was well, with, that was high school, but at the time I was doing club gigs, and then I was doing ca a cabaret sort of gig when I was 18, and then 19 I was doing the house band jobs. So if like uh, Jerry Lewis would come to town, I'd play behind him, or Louis Anderson, or just about anybody. And that would be generally reading, I'm, I'm assuming. It's all reading. All reading. There, yeah. there is no, no, there's no. And it's not slash charts, usually reading stuff that's been scribbled over and written over and, yeah, you know, and it's a lot of different fonts that you're getting used to, a lot of different handwriting, because that's the day before computer. Yeah. So you have different copies. Sometimes you get square dots, sometimes you get round dots. Yeah. Completely different copies, so. Mm. Yeah. So that's kind of where you would really cut your pro, pro teeth, you would say, or? Yeah, I did, I mean, all through that, you know. Um, because I was always playing different stuff. Hmm. Like while I was in Atlantic City, um, I used to play in a, a cover band, and I got together with friends, and we'd do uh, Prague stuff, uh, and some other friends. We'd play some Van Halen, you know, uh, other friends, like Serious Fusion, Return to Forever, Weather Report stuff. You know, it was just all music. And that's so you really thing. did love it all, or really do love it all. I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, when I was 17, I went on the road with this sort of show band and we're playing polkas we're playing pop covers I had he would make me write out a, a horn arrangement which was good for me mm. um, and then make me sing sometimes and then we're packing and loading the PA and then we had to drive the trucks you know all for $225 a week <laughs> but it's made you who you are or helped make you who you are to some oh, yeah. extent yeah. oh yeah Oh yeah, definitely. It was. I wouldn't do it again. <laughs> I wouldn't go back and do it again. It's yeah. like once is enough. Yeah, 
<laughs> once is two times too many, actually. Yeah. I could have lived without that. So what, what was kind of your first big break, so to speak, the kind of first session or gig you found yourself and going, okay, I've, I've gone up a, up a level? I think... Um, so Jimmy Paxson's ex-wife, Sunny Paxson, grew up with Stanley Clark. And so Stanley and his then-wife, Carolyn, who's a really good friend of mine, would take in all these strays for Christmas. And so I had met Stanley before, Stanley and George, like in the early 80s. And then um, well, we came there that Christmas, and then I sat with Stanley and Sonny, and we were playing some of the stuff that Sonny and I were working on, and Stanley put me to work the next day. So I started working for Stanley December 26, 1987. Okay, so there was a job on the next day. Yeah, and then I started playing on his movie stuff, and you know, he was, he was a mentor. I, I learned a ton from him. And how old are you at this point, roughly? 22, 23, <clears throat> something like that. Yeah. I think I'm 23, yeah. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Okay. So then from there, that's a, a door. Well, a Stanley turned me on to George Duke. George Duke got me a gig with Diane Reeves, and then I played with George as well. At the same time, I, was, I had met Billy Childs mm -hmm. through um, this other percussionist, Ronnie Gutierrez, that I knew. And um, that opened up another door. And then I was working with this guy, Ted Perlman, who's a, he was a New York session guitar player. And his wife, Peggy Blue, used to sing, I mean, brilliant background singer, you know, like the one that Streisand will call a book, a group, and then, you know, she could throw down. And she went on Star Search to try to make some money because they figured out the formula. And they won, mm. which was brilliant. Mm. And so I started working for him and doing gigs with different people also. And I would meet different, all different people in different branches, which would open up stuff. You know, that's the thing. If you stay in one pocket, one group of people, you're going to stay with that. Yeah, there's a, a limit kind of thing to yeah, it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like all my friends that don't play upright, that would complain that they were starving if I had a gig for them. I was like, if you play upright, yeah, I got plenty for you. You, know, you just have to be open. So but that's, how it, that's how it sort of blossomed in L.A. And then uh, just happened to be at the right place at the right time. Like I met Kurt Biscara through my friend Carl Burnett in 1988. And Kurt became one of my closest friends. He's the reason I got the SEAL gig. Okay. We were, it's like 94 or something like that. And we were doing a Berlinda Carlisle Christmas record. And I had been playing with Babyface and I needed to. I just needed a change. Mm -hmm. And I think I got the Babyface gig through Rayford Griffin, because Rayford grew up with Kenny Edmonds. And I played with Rayford with Stanley and George. So, so it just all yeah, yeah. blossoms. And I, I was sort of burnt out on playing R&B stuff. And uh, Kurt said, I'll call you back. And then I got the call for the SEAL audition. They weren't going to hire me because I looked too clean, like physically, <laughs> looked too clean. He's like, can you like not bathe for a week? You, kind of you, thing? you just can't win in the industry, right? Just can't make that <laughs> stuff clean, up. Too dirty, too tall, too short. Yeah. But uh, I did that for three years. So was that 
Seal was like an American band, or it was it, it was an all American band. No Pro Tools, awesome band. Uh, it was Chris Bruce on guitar, who plays bass with Seal sometimes, who also plays with Michelle okay. and Deggio Cello. Oh, cool. Uh, Earl Harvin on drums, who played with Air and the The, and Jamie Mahobrak on keys, who was like the synthesis of synthesis in L.A. You know, he's he's I mean he's on most Seal's first few records. That's pretty much Jamie's sound. Okay. And then, you know, he's on Tina Turner, he's on The Stones, he's that guy, you know. And it was just a killer band. That's the same band that's on MTV Unplugged. Cool. Yeah. But it was a lot of fun. It was yeah. a lot of fun. So how many years was that? Three. I did it for three years, uh, 95 through 98. I left to go on the road with Johnny Holiday. Okay. And played French pop for about five years. But I was still doing Bette Midler through that. And Babyface. That's the the. It was just lucky that I could have different accounts going, and I still had sessions going through that time. I'm a, when I look back at that period, it's amazing I did that many records. Yeah, nice. You know, any um, any kind of record highlights in that period? Or? During that period, I don't know. I don't think I don't think I had any real record highlights. It was just all good work. I mean, I hmm. played on some big tunes. Hmm. You know, but um, was so just was, was, it, good was it um, just the recording stuff you did with Mariah Carey, or was that live work? Uh, I was just recording with Mariah. I, you know, the record highlight I still have to say is the one that we didn't get credit for. Paul Jackson Jr. still mad that we didn't get credit. Oh, we did a, a Whitney Houston record. We did um, the Preacher's Wife, and it's it was produced. Mervyn Warren, who was with Take Six, produced the music, and uh, it's Jr. on drums, me on bass. PJ on guitar, and then Mervyn on keys and ridiculous production. But that was, sonically, it's great, and the music that Merv wrote was great, mm. and the way it was executed was great. It was just fantastic. But they put all these photos of Whitney, so the only people that got credit was the choir band, which I think we replaced some of their music as well. So somebody's credited for what we did. Really? Happens, happens. I've ghosted on a couple of records. Okay. Where the guys got endorsements where I couldn't get endorsements. I thought it was funny. <laughs> so they got endorsements off of my playing. So it kind of balances I, out over the, over the grand scheme of things. I don't know about that. Okay. <laughs> I don't know about that. But it's cool. And what, what kind of bass are you playing at this point? I still have the Reggie <coughs> Hamiltons, the signature models from Fender. Sorry, I mean, I mean, kind of like in the 90s. In uh, well, early 90s. Early 90s, I had a Squire jazz bass. I had a Federa six string, mm -hmm. which was beautiful, that uh, Vinnie and Joey made for me. That I um, I stopped using on recordings because everyone was request requesting the jazz bass. So I had a white Squire with Olympic pickups. And I added a fifth string. So it was like a $200 bass okay. with pickups that are probably like $800 now. <laughs> and I added a B string to it. So it was B-E-A-D? B-E-A-D-G. Oh, so you actually made I, it into a five string? Yeah, I made it into a five string. And I used it on, you know, I mean, people make jokes about it all the <laughs> time. But I used it on all the stuff I did with Stanley. Um, a lot of stuff I did from Babyface, like uh, Gladys Knight, Boys to Men, different stuff like that. I used it on 
working with Bette Midler, I used it working with Billy Childs, yeah, right. I used it with George Duke, I used it with all kinds of people. And nobody complained? They didn't complain. They didn't complain. In fact, it was the most requested bass I had. Sounds good, it is good. I retired it in 96. I gave the body to Michael Braun, who is a desi designer at Fender, and I, I got a, the first Jazz Deluxes, one of the first Jazz Deluxes off the line. And I still love that bass. Okay. I st I, in fact, I still tour with that bass. I have that and I have a matching fretless that Alex Perez made mm. for me. So I still love those. And I, am, I use those exclusively from 95 up to 2000 when designed the signature bass with Fender. Yeah. Mm. Talk a little bit about that process. What was your, what was your goal kind of with that collaboration, I mean, of what was it that you, that you weren't getting that you wanted to have? The goal was to have a bass that was comfortable for a guy that grew up playing four string. Okay. So if you look at the, the elites or the, the later series jazz deluxe that were active passive, that's all from the Reggie Hamilton, minus the, uh, the neck pickup and the fact that mm, my bass is nitrocellulose and those is a, you know, that's a, a poly of some sort. Um, so it was an asymmetrical neck, okay. 21 frets, because um, 24 frets and thumping, you just don't get the, the tone. I, th I, th I think I agree with that. Something I've noticed is you're slapping at a further back point. And, and you're, you're hitting a lot of harmonics. Yeah, right. You know, so you've got the, if it's smacking right against the 24th fret, and you're then suddenly you're getting overtones instead mm. of getting a great fundamental. Mm. So uh, I placed, and I also placed the my neck pickup differently. It's a P-Bass pickup, but it's placed so you can, you know, normally in a P-Bass you can't play any harmonics. So at this bass you can play all the harmonics. So a little bit further back towards the bridge? Um, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's like in a split area. I mean, you can look at it now and if you, if you get one, and it's basically, it's between the 29th and the 32nd fret. Okay. So that way you get all the overtones you like, and you can have both pickups running and still have all the overtones. Mm. It's, it's, it's just a, a really tonally great instrument. Uh, it's fully active and fully passive, so you have bass, treble, mid-range boost and cut, plus or minus 12 dB, and it, the preamp is naturally 6 dB hotter. Most, they wanted to start with 9, but it was just too much. So if you can back, it, back things off a little bit, you can get a, a great blend between active and passive. Sure. And when it's passive, it's fully passive. It's a passive tone stack and a volume and a pan pot. Mm. So it, it does a pre-CBS fairly well. Cool. Yeah. yeah. And do you miss just the straight JJ combination? Well, I still have them. So yeah, I still have those Jazz Deluxes yeah. and I still have my 67 Jazz, okay. which I've had forever. And um, got a, another Jazz, an American design, the original American design. Okay. That I, you know, when they asked me to, to make one, and that's yeah. a gorgeous bass. You ever going back to the, the Federa world, the six string kind of thing? I have a Federa 5. Okay. It's, um, I guess, what's that, the Imperial? Sure. It's 26 frets, but it's one pickup. Okay. And there's, it's active and passive with no pots whatsoever. So it's either active or it's passive. That's it. Then I have a Federa 12 string. It's, um, I bought this bass, it belonged to some other guy, and it, I just, love it. It's 36 inch scale and okay. there's it's an Anthony Jackson presentation in seafoam green. Wow. Yeah. It's 
massive, but but really, really good. That must be a pretty unique sound. It really is. It's lovely. Yeah. People laugh until they hear it. They're yeah. like, ah, ha, ha. Yeah. special. <laughs> it's just, the face <laughs> is like, oh my gosh. It's, yeah. You know, and it's beautiful, stunning. For sure. But uh, yeah, that's that's it for the Federa. I have two, the two Federas, and the rest of the electric basses are Fender. Oh, no, I have a an Epiphone Jack Cassidy. Okay. Which is a great bass. That's like a uh, hollow body, semi hollow body. Yeah, and Jack is he's a sweet man, always very nice. Yeah. You know, and it's an honor to play that bass because it's he did well. Yeah. He did well. It's like a, a less a seventy four Les Paul, but it's it's got a thing. It's got character and mm. it's stable and solid. P bases, couple. I've, I've got the Reggie Hamiltons. All the other P bases so I just had. You just wind off the back yeah. pickup and then, yeah. And all the other P bases I have, I gave away. Yeah. yeah. So you still get to play on that neck that you like, but yeah. with, the, with the P bass tone. Exactly. Win win. Exactly. Yeah. Actually, I used to have uh, a Reggie Hamilton four ah. string that I bought from Damien Erskine. <laughs> when I was living in in Canada. One of my old students. Yeah. Really. And Damien studied with me when he was like nine, ten years old. Okay, that makes sense. I knew his grandfather, Peter Peter Erskine's father. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Where, where was that? Where, where was it was teaching? Atlantic City. Right. Yeah. He brought him to me. He was like <laughs> smart little kid. He was funny. Yeah. And we used I used to always just stress fundamentals, which I still do. Hmm. You know. Well, he did a good job. He's ah. turned out all right. I think he's done a good job on <laughs> on his own. He's 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 talented. Yeah, and he's and, talented. and he's also a great educator now as well. Yes, he is. Yeah. Yes, he is. Yeah. He's got his own voice. Yes, he does. Definitely. You know, I, I dig that. Yeah. I dig that. So you know, doing um, I guess you know, speaking of teaching, is that something that you're involved in these days or have been? Well, I was teaching a little bit this past fall. Um, a friend of mine, great drummer, just passed away in Dugu Chancellor. Oh, yeah. And uh, he had recommended me for this gig. And um, so I, was, I had a bunch of young students. It's interesting with young students because in the 21st century, it's not a lot of them practice and put in the effort or the time. And especially, Especially these kids that have so much going on in LA, they're going from this practice to that practice, and their parents want them to do this, and their parents want them to do that, and mm. you've got to do this, you've got to be up on your grades, you have to, you know. It's and so, then, so much yeah. pressure. Yeah, and the music becomes, you know, academic more than for the love of it. So mm. it becomes very difficult. And there were some talented kids there. Most times I just teach guys that want to brush up on something. You know, uh, and it's usually more leaning more towards professionals, okay. or or gearing kids up, like not in the orchestral sense because I don't have those sensibilities. I mean, I can do basic stuff with them, but as far as jazz and electric bass, getting them college ready, yeah, okay. that I can do. So getting ready for Berkeley kind of thing, or or as um, I had a student, Joshua Crumbly. Um, and I had recommended, I had had him go to my mentor, Al McKibben, and Joshua studied some with Victor, Bailey studied some with Marcus. Okay, yeah. You know, and um, just getting him college ready. He got a full ride at Juilliard. Nice. You know. I have some kids at USC, or I had in the past, you know, just yeah. kids different different places or professionals. 
Like I remember uh, Duff McKagan came to me for lessons oh, some awesome. years ago. Then there's another teacher at USC who's a friend. He wants to take some lessons working on okay. some different stuff. Just working on concepts and how to approach things differently. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, I mean, I'd love to be a fly in the wall with a Duff McKagan. Well, it's great because Duff's yeah. super cool. He's super, yeah. super smart. He just wanted to play with his fingers more and get inside of different things. Yeah. You know. He was one of my early kind of bass icons, so oh, to speak. Yeah. You know, that first Guns N' Roses album. Oh, yeah. That tone. The first GNR, his tone is great. Ugh. You know, and it's, he, he knows how to play with a pick. Yeah. So he just wanted to open some stuff up. Great pocket as well. Yes, he like does. That, that, that's good. Killer pocket. That's good groove. Killer pocket. I, I, guess that's one of the, I guess that's one of the things that, as bass players, um, it's kind of the remit of the, it's the job description is you got to groove no matter what the thing is you know everything has to groove to some extent it, I, you know it's bass players see it that way but it, it it varies you know it's like in a changing world there's a lot of people that have a bass that consider themselves bass players now you know some producers got a bass in the corner and Mm-hmm. So he feels he plays bass well enough, and, and it'll sound pretty crappy on his record, and he's worked, spent 12 hours trying to edit something that takes your eye 10 minutes to do. <laughs> but, you know, it is what it is. Um, it, should, they sh- it should groove. It should, it should suit the music, I should say that. Yeah. You know, it's like um, if you're playing in, in a particular band and everything is, like, really tight, it should have that tight sound, or, you know, you can't come to it. It's, it's like coming to a restaurant and bringing your own ketchup that you pour all over your Chateaubriand. You know, it's like... Gotcha. You, you have to sort of like uh, be in the moment and be there. You have to kind of be a little bit of a chameleon. But, Absolutely. But have your own... I guess that's the, the thing is being, being able to fit in in all these situations, but having your own signature. I don't, I, and well, it's, I mean, it's, you know, it's, I think your own signature naturally comes out. One's own signature. It's like. If you spend enough time on the instrument. Yeah. You and I can, it's like eating a hamburger. You and I can eat the exact same hamburger. It's going to come out different. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We you process I mean? things differently. We process things completely differently. <laughs> <laughs> that's the best way I can put it where everybody oh, so, oh yeah, that, right, that's okay. true yeah well, it's, um, it's being attentive, studying the history of different things it's like um, who did Duff McKagan listen to or who did Jocko listen to or who did Stanley listen to, who did mm. Anthony listen to, who did Paul Chambers listen to who did Pops Foster listen to, you know who did Wilbur Ware listen to? Who did um, Sam Jones, Mingus, um, Pops Popwell, um, Jimmy Haslip? Who did these guys listen to to help them be who they were? Hmm. So getting an understanding and going further and further back and studying the history. Who did John Coltrane listen to? Who did Sonny Rollins listen to? You know, it's, you just have to keep going further back. Okay. And when, when you were, I guess, in your 13, 14 development stage as, as a player, what was, who were kind of some of the bass guys that you were really delving into? Well, first was Verdine White. Cool. Actually, that's not true. First was, um, 
uh, gosh, and now his name escapes me. Played bass with Chicago. Uh, 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 Jimmy. Uh, no, Jimmy no. Earl? No, I'm thinking. No, 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 no. Um, and he ended up singing for Chicago. Peter Cetera. Oh. Peter Cetera, yeah. Edit, cut. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so the first guy was uh, Peter Cetera. Chicago, because I had studied with this bass player, this tall, tall brother with a big afro named Art, and he played a Gibson EB3, <laughs> and um, an EB3L, too. And we would sit and play along with Chicago tunes for $4 a lesson. So this is just private lessons at all? Yeah. Kind of thing. And he was like three blocks away from my place. And then um, my first real bass teacher was Kim Clark who played with uh, Joe Henderson and played with Defunct, with Joe Bowie, who's still playing, and she's still killer. Hmm. So she had me studying through Samandel and, and things like that. But as I started to listen, you know, I, I listened to Billy Cox as a kid, and I listened to different bands, you know, there was like New Birth and BT Express, and, but Earth, Wind & Fire like struck a chord. And which was, I found out later, was really Lewis Satterfield playing on a lot of the early stuff along with Verdine. At least that's what I'm told. Okay. Sorry, Verdine. Mm. I don't know if that's true or not. I'm, I'd be surprised if he catches this, but. Yeah. <laughs> you never know. You never know. Verdine is, he's. On it? Omnipresent. <laughs> um, I, I listen to Earth, Wind, Fire a ton. Yeah. And um, this first band I was in, I got kicked out of the band because I didn't play with my thumb. Normally it's the opposite. Yeah, normally, <laughs> normally it's like the guy plays too much. And so I happened to be listening, there was a band called Brainstorm. Okay. And Dion Estes, who used to play with um, George Michael, he was like 18 years old. There's a song called On Our Way Home. If you just go to, go to YouTube and find it. I forget the girl who's singing, she passed on. She was amazing. But Dion, it starts out boom, 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 and I was, it struck me, it was really great. You know, and I was listening to Stanley, of course. You know, Larry, the Larry Graham. I listened to Graham, but I didn't get into Graham really until I was about fifteen, sixteen. Okay. You know, I mean, I had heard all the stuff. I probably got into Lewis before I got into Graham. I got into Graham listening to. The arrangements, mm. all the arrangements struck me, you know, because I, I wasn't really focused on playing with my thumb. Still, I did it because I had to do it, right. you know. Um, but I, I listened. I listened to the other stuff first, but then Stanley got hold of me, and it's like, <laughs> you know, you get your first Stanley Clark record, and it's like, because yeah. the bass wasn't prevalent then. Sure. And then. Um, I guess I was in junior high or my first year of high school and I heard Jocko. There's this, this kid I knew named Brett Sims who was funky, always played with one finger and he played this Univox bass, always on the back pickup and he had this groove that was, I've, I've instilled to this day, I haven't heard anybody play like that. But he and I sat and listened to Portrait of Tracy and we listened to Donna Lee and then we just sat silent for a while because it was his brother's record and his brother played bass too wow. he played this Travis Bean fretless but we just sat in silence we're like I don't even know what that is you know? yeah I think most people after they have that experience they just kind of they're just in awe yeah but then I heard Jeff Berlin mm. who's 
I mean, still to this day, as, as far as an improviser goes, I mean, just listen to Water on the Brain. I, I doubt seriously that he constructed it. I think he just went in and threw down. That's some of the best bass soloing I'd ever heard. Yeah. You know, just, un, just unbelievable. And so did you kind of want to be a solo guy? I wanted to be, but I wanted to eat. You know, the, the problem was, you know, being young and immature and not having like steady guidance on a musical level, I took all that stuff to gigs, which really wasn't, you know, I, 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 I wasn't like Marcus. Marcus was super mature early on. Hmm. Like I could walk to school. I used to walk to school in high school and I could hear Marcus practicing. <laughs> you know, I mean, like every day. And uh, he was just super together. Hmm. But he was, you know, he was 19, playing with Lenny White, like that Streamline record, which is brilliant. You know, and he was on top of it. That's why Miles loved him so. That's why everybody loved him so. Yeah. So I, I didn't have the maturity and the discipline to not play unnecessary stuff for a while. And so it took a minute. Once I thought about tone through Stanley, really, it's funny, the guy that, you know, influenced me to play so much was a guy that influenced me to not play so much just from a talk about tone. So from a dis different aspect, I mean, we talked about upright tone, um, how hard to attack the instrument before it starts to choke, you know. You, it, was, it was brilliant. Mm. It was absolutely brilliant, you know. I never, and I never thought about using different strings on an upright. You know, like maybe two strings from one company and two from another, all for the sake of tone. Sure. Yeah. It was, it was just wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Paratucci, was it? Because that was kind of about when he was really coming to prominence, the kind of late 80s, early 90s. His, his upright tone, was that a thing that you were... No, I didn't want John's upright tone. No. I mean, I like John. Yeah. I like John, and you know, he's, tone, he's a wonderful his tone, guy. His tone's really evolved. Yeah, I, I would definitely say it has. Yeah, I never wanted John's electric tone or his upright tone. His soloing on six string was beautiful. Mm. And his soloing on upright is, is quite beautiful. But it wasn't my, wasn't my focus, sure. was my point of reference. Um, I wanted to have Al McKibben's tone. You know, he, was, uh, he was like a father to me. And when I was a kid and I was listening to stuff and watching TV and listening to stuff, that was the guy I was listening to. Okay. And when I go back to the most, the stuff that I sing now, if I go back and sing stuff that I was in my childhood, it's all the stuff he played on and I can sing those bass lines. Hmm. And spending time with him talking about tone is a whole, it was a whole other thing. That was like a total hmm. mind throw, you know. He's, man, I mean, here's a guy that played on Birth of the Cool and he didn't play on all of it because he was busy. <laughs> He's, he told Miles he couldn't do the whole record because he was busy with Monk at the Five Spot. He played on Menteca with Dizzy, so in some circles he's known as the father of Latin jazz bass. He's on the original Odd Couple TV show. He's on the original Batman. This is the same guy. Wow. You know. And this is all stuff that I watched. Religious, you know, yeah, yeah. he was on a, like the Red Skelton show, different things like that. Played with Sammy, played with George Shearing. I mean, he played with Sinatra, he played with Bird, he played with all, did all sorts wow. of gigs. 
And so that was the tone I was going for. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And he has he had a magnificent tone. Yeah. So when you um, because you you released a solo record not that long ago. Fourteen years ago. Fourteen years ago? Was yeah. it really? Fourteen. I guess ago. you know early two thousand still seems like. Yeah, it's gets yeah, Okay. <laughs> you hit us when you hit a certain age. It's like all relative. <laughs> um. Another one, or is, was it just a? I've got another one in the works. Yeah. You know, it, the, the thing is just sitting down and wanting to take the effort to do it because it's, you know, for me it was a labor of love. It's not like something I'm going to like sell like a hundred million copies. I'm sure. not going to be like uh, Taylor Swift or something. Like yeah, that. you know, it's elaborate stuff. Um, the, the first one was cool. Billy Childs is on it. George Duke's on it. Sheila E's on it. Cool. And. Um, yeah, it was it was just a labor of love. Yeah. And that was just the stuff that you'd been kind of accumulating over your... Actually, no. I wrote a lot of it then. I have even more stuff. You know, well, some of the things, like there's um, the, the title cut and the tune Letter to Deb, which is my sister, um, were film cues for something that I was writing for Babyface in 94. I was writing some underscoring stuff, which they ended up going with all pop songs. It was a weird movie about euthanasia and, and two elderly people. They went with pop songs, which okay. is, I thought was bizarre. So uh, I, they, those pieces I'd written for like chamber groups, mm. and and two, I had two I two recorded two piccolo basses, and I just turned them into tunes, mm. you know, which was cool. And George plays great on it, and then uh, Dino Saldo plays harmonica on the other one, and. James Harris playing guitar and Kurt Biscara's playing drums. You know, it was uh, just sort of a thing. Mm. And there's one tune on their Speechless, which I wrote with Bob Leatherbarrel, but we did it on his record with Mitch Foreman and Ernie Watts, and that's all straight ahead. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I wanted to do a different take on it, and so it's half bebop and half electronic. Okay. You know. I think the biggest problem for me when I did that record was I just every solo that I took was just off the top of my head I didn't take the time to really like really construct it or do my overdubs or anything like that I was like all purist about it even though I was in Pro Tools I did destructive recording for everything Wow so what you see is what you get on that okay you know there's no real overdubs I didn't fix any of my bass stuff that's just like boom so you'd probably approach that differently now I may. I'm not quite sure. Or get, get I think all maybe the guys I'll just the, practice more. <laughs> <laughs> just get all the guys in the, in the room and record to tape. Yeah, I would like that better. Yeah, I would like that a lot better. Because you know? I, I have tunes. I might have another 20 tunes. It's deciding how far into the forest I want to go in either direction. Mm. Like, do you reckon it'll be a broad spectrum or maybe like the last one? It, it, it maybe I may do interludes again. Yeah, you know I I love doing the interludes because it's just like boom, boom, boom. Yeah. There's one where um, I think it starts out with synths and then it's just two basses. It's like a fretless and a fretted. Mm-hmm. And um, I was at Tony Shepard's place trying out. Um, I think we were trying out. Uh, a preamp or something like that. We might have been testing the ready at that time, and so I just recorded those two parts, and that was it. It was just and that became a thing. And I did all the interludes like that. The first one was just uh, 
bases and then I added the other bases. I sent it to Gary Carr. He was like shocked. He's like, I didn't know you were going to have that up front. It's like he was really happy about that. So that cool. was cool. And um, then there's one with it's like two uprights. So it's almost like a dedication to Stanley because I played some of some of his licks. And then uh, another electric one where um, I used a loop of Erskine. Oh, really? Pete said I could use his name. I was like, now nah, wait until I have you actually play on it, play on something cool. Yeah. Yeah. Was that a loop that you cut yourself? It was something, yeah, yeah it turned into a seven, a thing right. in seven. Cool. Yeah. So you, so you kind of, I mean, you really um, embody the modern working professional basis in that you can produce, you can record yourself, you can yeah. you know, mix an album, you can read, I, you can do bop, you can do the pop thing, you can do the R&B thing. It's yeah, I can't mix. I okay. couldn't mi mix my way out of a paper Sorry. bag. Okay. I, I leave that to professionals. Just Sutcliffe mixed that record, okay. and he did a great job. You know? But you know, it's, it's, it, being able to cover all those things has kept you, kept you working. Kept me working, you know. Yeah. Uh, just playing different types of music kept me working. And I know how to record myself. Mm -hmm. That I know how to do. And I know how to set up mics for drums or yeah. for an orchestra or for vibes or piano. I know mm -hmm. where to place things. You, know, you do enough sessions and keep your mouth shut and watch enough. You can learn some cool yeah. stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's in a world where, I mean, every, you know, it's, it's, it's tough for me because it's this whole YouTube world. Mm. I was sitting, I was doing a session with Vinny one day and um, wow. I think I called them armchair Caesars. He thought it was the funniest thing because it's what it is. It's kind of like, and this guy, it's some guy sitting in a chair in front of a computer. It's like, get out and do something. Get out and do something yourself. If you're busy doing something yourself, you don't have enough time to judge somebody else's stuff. Mm. You're doing your own thing. Just, so I'm just trying to get out there and do my stuff. You know, there's good days, bad days. Yeah. I remember when I was young and I wasn't working enough. Or I was ambitious and wanted to work, you know, which is cool. But I'm, I'm cool. Is there any, um, anything you would have said to a young Reggie to kind of give him hope or a bit of advice, if you could? Practice more and be ready for whatever comes. Yeah. You know, be ready. Spend less time with chicks. Spend less time goofing off. Just put the work in there. Put, put the work in and take some time for yourself. Yeah. Travel. Study languages more. Mm. I mean, I speak, I halfway speak some languages. Yeah. You know, enough, to, enough to get an espresso in most places in the I world. I can get an espresso just about any place in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I know how to say that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Stay healthy, stay fit. Yeah. Do you um, find that difficult on the road, or? I, I think it's 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 in, it's imperative that we take our vitamins. We try to be, you know, because it's very easy to get party to party, get complacent. You know. You can sit make around. Dietary choices, I guess, that kind of thing. Have to. Yeah. Have to. You know, pick and choose how much partying you want to do. Uh, how many carbohydrates you want to eat, things like that. Mm. Especially now, I'm, I'm getting older, <laughs> you know, so it's, uh, it's important, it's yeah. important. Um, yeah, and keep listening to other music. Mm. Is there some... I, actually, I didn't have that problem. You were always listening. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was always listening. I mean, 
looking through, if you look through my music selection, it's, I mean, there's, there's my daughter's stuff is in there, which is really good. Um, then it's like Audio Slave, Adam Rogers. That first Audio Slave album is unreal. It's awesome. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> it's a great record. You know, uh, Adam Rogers, yeah. who's, who's brilliant. I think that was, um, I think it's The Invisible. Is that record? Is that the record? And it just goes and goes, you know. Mm. There's Beatles, there's, uh, there's Hindemith, there's Elliot Carter, there's Beethoven, there's... Um, Hendrix. And there's tons of Hendrix. <laughs> there's Zepp, there's Mahavishnu, there's Weather Report, there's RTF, there's David Sanctius, there's... Um, Eric Whittaker, there's... I mean, there's just about everything. Yeah. Everything, um, Bulgarian Women's Choir, mm. Joni Mitchell, you know. Mm. Any, anything? Justin kinda, Curry. Oh, anything happening just now that, that's kind of piqued your interest? Uh, recent, recent times? For, for music's sake? Yeah. For me personally, no. It's just, I think I've piqued my interest. Like I've sort of rediscovered me, so I find myself shedding. I mean, there's lots of great bass players out. That's exciting. Yeah, it's yeah. a neat thing. There's, there's lots of great bass players to listen to, and you understand their concepts. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't necessarily want to try to play like anybody. Just develop my technique so that I can play whatever I want. Yeah. You know, or whatever I hear, or whatever somebody asks of me, without it being any sort of problem. Mm. You know, sometimes it can be difficult. Yeah. You know, someone put something like, or if your brain, just to keep my concentration together. I remember doing a session the other day where it was, and you know, it was a dotted quarter, eighth note, double dotted quarter, and a sixteenth, and I just kept playing it as dotted quarter eighth, dotted quarter eighth, <laughs> and I had to put my glasses on. It was like ah, oh, and I had to get my mind in that spot, and it was like super simple. I mean, it's like it should be like. Just in glitch Rolling off the duck. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes, you know, it's like fixing the glitches, but I keep forgetting. I'm getting older. <laughs> yeah. you know. No. Well, man, we've got to wrap it up there because yeah. you've got to go to the sound check. Yeah, I have to go. Yeah, I have to go. Yeah, it's about that time. Yeah, yeah. Um, really appreciate you, you taking the time, man. Oh, man. It was an absolute pleasure. Great. Talk to you soon. Reggie Hamilton, everybody. Take care. Cool, man. Thanks. Oh, Christ had 12 apostles and three he led away he said watch with me one hour till I go yonder and pray well guys there you have it Reggie Hamilton what a legend um, it, was, it was really a blast hanging out with him I uh, hope you enjoyed it if you do um, as always please leave me a little review or if you want to send me an email um, with any questions or suggestions you can do that at info at basselessonsmelbourne.com uh, once again thank you to the sponsors of the show FBase which you can find at fbase.com and Baseface Strings and uh, their website is www.baseinyourface.com.au uh, thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. And stay tuned for more interviews coming very soon. Bye.